coming up on today's episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. And in total, we have some 3.1 million bottles aging in those caves. And so people that come up and get to visit with us will go through the caves and they'll see the whole process about how the wines are made. And of course, the best part of any tour is when you get to sit down and actually enjoy the product. Yes. Part- Speaking of that, we're enjoying a bottle of uh, Brut Rosé at this moment. Bless you. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, for- we forgot to tell you that. And one of the wines that was served, and this is Barbara Walters recording, she says, from the beautiful bucolic Napa Valley, there is a sleepy little winery called Schramsberg. And last night at the dinner, they celebrated the 1969 vintage of the Blanc de Blanc. This was something we had no idea was happening. It was literally wow. a PR opportunity we couldn't buy. And you gently rock the cork out very slowly while applying some pressure. And you almost just kind of gently gas it and let it just sigh. And we, we kind of joke it should sound like a nun in church, just a little... coming to you from st petersburg florida you're listening to the st petersburg foodies podcast the show that's the authority on where to eat in st pete here are your hosts kevin godby and Lori brown hi i'm kevin godby and i'm Lori brown thank you for tuning in today Welcome to the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast, the podcast that's it when it comes to restaurants and food information in St. Pete. And be sure to check out our website, stpetersburgfoodies.com. There you'll find great information, including restaurant reviews, the largest St. Pete happy hour list ever created and kept updated, and information on the newest restaurants in town. We are locals that live in downtown St. Pete, and we've been eating our way through this town for years, so you don't have to. But you should. We have a new episode every Tuesday. Just hit the subscribe button, and you'll get notified when an episode is ready for download. And then you can listen to them anytime you want, like on your morning jog or commute to work. On today's show, our featured guest is my great friend, Fred Zamataro. Fred is the COO and Executive Vice President of Shramsburg Vineyards in Napa Valley. At the top of the show, we'll have a quick three-minute outtake from Nate Najar telling us a great story about the Rules Restaurant in London. We We have have a great great show, show, so stick stick around. St. Pete is all about local, and this year we celebrate a local legend's 25th anniversary. Roland Oates Market and Cafe was founded in July of 94 by Bert Swain and Larry Schwartz. From the beginning, Roland Oates has made a commitment to provide St. Pete customers with the finest quality organic whole foods, nutritional supplements, and body care products at the most reasonable prices possible. And now they have a South Tampa location too. We go there for many items, but they are the only place that we go to buy our raw probiotics and other supplements. They have the best organic whole food selection in town, and on the flip side of that, they also offer a fantastic selection of wines and an unparalleled selection of local craft beer. Rollin' Oats has a cafe, Open Daily, which offers delicious sandwiches, burgers, soups, salads, bowls, wraps, entrees, and fresh-made smoothies, along with a variety of prepared and packaged take-home meals located in the market itself. Do you pride yourself with supporting local businesses? Well, put your money where your mouth is and get on into Rollin' Oats today. 
Roland Oates St. Pete is located at 2842 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Street North. And in South Tampa, you'll find them at 1021 North McDill Avenue. Check them out on the web at rollinoats.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N oats.com. And Roland Oates offers online ordering with curbside pickup. Hey, Lori, have you ever been to Noble Crust? I have. What do you like there? Pork belly pimento cheese and fried green tomatoes are my favorite. Oh, yeah, I love that one, too. They actually call it the FGBLT. It's fried green tomatoes, pork belly glazed with a Tabasco honey sauce and pimento cheese. Mm -hmm. And it's the first item on the menu, so you can't miss it. And I think they should actually call it the OMG. Yeah, you've said that before. The chicken marsala is really good, too. It has chicken and chicken sausage, criminy mushrooms, and four cheese grits. It's so delicious. I love that they mix classics from the American Deep South and Italy. Noble Crust is famous for their fried chicken. I love it. Yeah, and the eggplant parmesan is out of this world. When we do a best eggplant parm list, it'll definitely be on there. Yes, it will. Speaking of lists, Noble Crust made six of them recently. Best Italian, Best Casual Dining, Best Pizza, Best Bloody Marys, Best Meatballs, and, believe it or not, Best Salads. Ooh, can I tell you another one of my favorite items? Yeah. The spaghetti and meatballs. It's oh, so good. man, you're not kidding. You know what? They have a brunch on Saturdays and Sundays starting at 1030, which I love. And the deviled eggs are to die for. Let's go to Noble Crust right now. I'm in. Let's do it. A few weeks ago, we had Nate Najjar as our featured guest. And during our commercial break in the middle of the interview, he told us this really cool story. And I had tape still rolling and it was too good to leave out. So we're putting it in for right now. Here is Nate Najjar telling us about Rules Restaurant in London, which is the oldest restaurant in London, started by Thomas Rule in 1798, and it serves traditional British food. Here's Nate. So yeah, we, we're definitely going to hit you up for where to go when we go to London, if we when we ever get there. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's. Um, I'll tell you. There's a place uh, just one block off the Strand called Rules that you must, well, especially you guys, because I've seen some some of the kinds of places you like to eat. Um, this place is called Rules, and uh, it's it's just superb. It's been there since the um, either the 17th or the 18th century. I think it, I think it's the 18th century. I think it was there in the 1700s, but it might wow. have been even earlier than that. And uh, the guy was named Thomas Rules, and he opened this place, and it was all traditional English food, but done very high end. Basically, the the whole menu is if you were an aristocrat in uh, you know, kind of before the fall of the aristocracy. So, you know, the, right. before World War One, for instance, if you were an aristocrat in um, in England, this is the kind of food that you'd be eating kind of regularly. This is the stuff that your kitchens and your servants would be serving to you. This uh, and so Thomas Rules opened this place in in the 18th century, and um, it's hysterical. What happened was. Uh, his it got passed on to a couple of generations, and somewhere about a hundred years later or so, the uh, the family member who owned it at that point didn't want to live in England anymore, and he went to France and found a restaurant that he wanted to buy, 
and he traded restaurants with the French owner of that restaurant. So he moved to to France and took this guy's restaurant and this guy moved to England and took his restaurant. And that's awesome. But it's still, it's still the same type. You should, you should look it up on, um, look it up online and check the menu, but it's, it's, uh, it's just superb, uh, traditional English food, very high end. The environment is, uh, you know, one of the things about about a place like London that uh, even New York doesn't have is the, and Paris doesn't have it either because you know they leveled Paris and uh, Napoleon leveled Paris and then you know, right. Houseman they they rebuilt it. But um, but you know London, I mean, there's really there's over two thousand years of history. Every corner you stand on, every single street corner you stand on, you can see two thousand years of buildings and, wow. and, uh, uh, you know, roads and sidewalks and so forth. And so, you know, there's just, there's just such a, a variety of things in any single spot. And, uh, uh, you know, and the, and the restaurants are, um, are certainly one of them, but I, I guess what I'm saying is there's, there's like an, an importance to, you can feel the gravitas or the, the reverence for where you are and what you're doing. And they, they treat it that way when they when they run the establishment um that's awesome yeah you know, and it's really it's cool. rules like r-u-l-e-s that's correct thomas rules and they wow. um uh, actually you know it's funny there's a there's a james bond film and i can't remember i don't remember which one it is but it's one of the daniel craig pictures and there's a, a short scene where he's in the window in this restaurant oh cool yeah oh that's really cool yeah but it's uh it's that particular restaurant is, you know, you wouldn't eat there every day or even twice a week unless you, you know, who does do that. It's like, it's like the kind of place that, um, it's like the kind of place that you would, uh, see lots of high, high end business deals happening over, uh, you know, over cocktails late at night or, you know, governmental deals and things like that. I mean, it's really, right. you know, it's one of those kinds of places. Nice. Uh, cool. So. Awesome. So, uh, so somehow I got to figure out how to keep that in. <laughs> It was still recording through all that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be right back with Fred Zamataro. One of our favorite places to go eat in St. Pete is Engine Number no. 9. They've been a staple in downtown St. Pete coming up on seven years, and they are famous for their unique and tasty burger creations. As a matter of fact, they are on the St. Pete Foodies list of best burgers in St. Pete. And they also made the best hot dogs list, the best chilies, and the best wings in St. Pete. Aside from the food, Engine Number no. 9 is a great sports bar with lots of TVs, beer, and wine. And you can even get a regular old cheeseburger, too, so you can bring your non-adventurous eater friends. Check out Engine Number no. 9 at the corner of MLK and 1st Avenue North in downtown St. Pete. Their burgers can't be beat. We have a special guest today coming to us from Napa Valley. Please welcome the Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President of Shramsburg Vineyards, Fred Zamataro. Hi, sweetie. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you both. She she calls everybody sweetie. I do. No, she doesn't. Well, but, no, everybody that, that I know very well. Well, yeah, we're going to... Turns out uh, that my girlfriend and business partner has friends in high places. I do. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that a little further down the line. I just want to mention for anybody that doesn't know Schramsberg, uh, that Schramsberg has all kinds of accolades. Now, the Schramsberg brand, that's sparkling wine. 
kind of like champagne. Mm -hmm. And then there's also still wines. But Schramsberg is the only sparkling wine served at the White House, I learned when we went to visit. Hopefully not with anything with ketchup on it. <laughs> and, oh, boy, honey. <laughs> and yeah, we don't get into politics on this show. And, and the other brand is Davies, Davies Vineyards, and that's still wines, which are fantastic. And that's uh, Reds, Pinot Noirs, and Cab Savs. Yes, they are. But first, let's get to know Fred Zamataro. Well, again, good morning, and thank you for including me in your podcast. It's a huge honor. Talking, talking a little bit about how I got into this, it's very serendipitous. My professional background, I'm a CPA. And along my, my uh, early days of dating my wife, we discovered wine. And like many people, we just got the wine bug. And at the time, we were living in Southern California down in the L.A. area. And we would frequently make day trips to Santa Barbara and, and some of the wine regions there. And whenever there was a long holiday weekend, we would make the trek and come up to Napa and Sonoma and just immerse ourselves in the culture and trying to learn and understand and appreciate more about the wonderful world of wine and, and food and just that whole lifestyle. And over a course of time, we got to know many of the vintners and we've made friends up here. And one particular Saturday, the owners of Schramsburg, Jack and Jamie Davies, were being honored for a Lifetime Achievement Award at the uh, Four Seasons in Santa Barbara. And we thought, oh my gosh, we should go. We should be supportive. Let's, you know, let's make the trip. And so there in the grand tasting, Jack Davies was standing behind the table pouring his bubblies with a big broad smile and a grin and just greeting everybody. And we said, hey, Jack, how are you? And uh, one conversation led to another, and he was looking for a CFO at the time. And, wow. Uh, <laughs> and so it was a little hard to talk at the table because obviously people kept coming up, you know, to get another refresher in their glass and were asking questions. And Jack finally said, tell you what, Fred, are you staying here at the hotel? And we said, yes, yes, we are. So let's get together for breakfast tomorrow. We'll talk. Well, that conversation <laughs> led to an to a, uh an invitation to come up here and interview with he and his wife and the family. And uh, that was 24 plus years ago. <laughs> so here I sit and I think to myself, uh, careful what you ask for, because I wasn't I wasn't actively looking. But right. uh, the opportunity to marry my recreation with my vocation was just too big to pass up. Yeah, that's always the best, right? I, I know you've told me that story, but I didn't remember all of it. That's awesome. Yeah, and, yeah. And let's mention your lovely wife, Cheryl, who is also at Opus One. Yes. Yeah, so my wife, Cheryl, like I said, we both met in college. We were both uh, business accounting students. We both uh, went to the big eight at the time. I'm dating myself, now the big four. Uh, I went to Deloitte. She went to KPMG. We got our CPA licenses and we were on an upward uh, career path that was, was fun and exciting. And then lo and behold, uh, the interest in wine burgeoned and, and blossomed. And here we are where uh, Cheryl is the controller at Opus One, and I'm here at uh, Transburg and Davies, and we just couldn't be happier. And I just couldn't be more spoiled when I go visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so Schramsburg, currently the current ownership that's been for a while now is the uh, Davies family. But the name Schramsburg comes from the original founder from back in the 1800s, actually 1862. 
that is correct. Right. Yes, you've done your homework. I'm impressed. Um, so <laughs> he does are, a lot of homework, Fred. He spent the whole day researching. <laughs> no, I love it. Thank you. That's great. Um, so yeah, sure. I can touch a little bit on the history just to kind of give your audience some perspective. Uh, we are the second oldest winery in the Napa Valley. We were started in 1862. Our founder was a German immigrant. His name was Jacob Schramm. That's the name Schramsburg. So in German, in the word Berg, there's two spellings, right? There's B-E-R-G or there's B-U-R-G. And so if it's spelled with a U, it usually means city, town, or village. So it's like something like Pittsburgh, right? Right. So the, the word Berg with a U in it would mean city, town, or village like yeah, like St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, exactly. So the word berg with an E literally means mountain. So think of like an iceberg. It's a mountain of ice. A mountain. Oh, and yeah. so the translation was, since we're located up on Diamond Mountain in Napa, this was mm-hmm. literally Schramm's Mountain. We had, That's at the time, awesome. he had some 400 acres up here on the hillside. And uh, that was how the name all started. But his, so four four hundred acres then. How many now? We have two hundred and thirty now. Okay. Yeah. So when Jacob started this, you know, it was a very um, it was a very tough start in the beginning. At the age of sixteen, back in Germany, it was I think eighteen forty two. He let he fled Germany because back in the day, sixteen year old males were put into the army. And he didn't want to go into the army. So he hopped on a boat, came to the United States, and got settled in New York, where he was formally educated and trained as a barber. And he <laughs> did that right, for a number right. of years and came to California during the gold rush. And, uh, you know, back in the day during the gold rush, San Francisco is not this burgeoning metropolis that it is today. Um, you know, pre gold rush, it started off as just a little tiny town that had like 8,000 people. And right. during the transition of the gold rush, within about six months' time, there was an influx of about 150,000 people. I mean, so it was, boom, it literally exploded in six months' time. And so when Jacob got there, he had some very successful clients. And as they sat in his chair and he did his craft, they would talk to him about business opportunities. And you can imagine a town that was exploding so quickly there were opportunities for things like hotels and saloons and banks and mercantile shops and, you know, dare I say, brothels, you know, whatever it took to make the right. town go. And so Jacob realized, my gosh, this is working for these men. They're, they're hugely successful. So he listened to some of their sage advice. And over a short period of time, he was able to parlay enough money to come up here to Napa and purchase these 400 acres of land. You know, and kind of makes you think, imagine your hairdresser today trying to buy 400 acres of plant, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, Yeah, he clearly didn't do it cutting the hair. He was able to just employ some of the sage advice of these these businessmen and investors. And that's really how he got started. And what motivated him to, to want to get into the wine business is growing up in Germany. He grew up in the town of Federsheim, which is along the Rhine River. And it's very well known for having some spectacular wines and vineyards. And the philosophy back there is the steeper terraced hillside vineyards, the higher the quality of the fruit. And so he Mm -hmm. wanted to employ that same logic here. 
So you can imagine if he was the second uh, winery in Napa, it would have been so much easier to start out with a vineyard and a winery on the valley floor where things would have been easier. But that was contrary to what he knew and grew up with in Germany. He wanted hillside vineyards. So they literally cleared the forest. And we have the very first hillside vineyards in Napa County, as well as the very first hillside caves. Caves, right. Yeah, that's right. pretty cool. Yeah, we got to tour the caves when we were out there. We did. I've been on that tour quite a few times. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's truly spectacular. For any of your, your audience that would have a chance to come out here, I, you know, obviously I'm a company man, I'm going to suggest it, but it really is truly something magical. Um, it is to, to totally see magical. When you walk through the caves to see the pick marks and the shovel marks, it's just scars in the earth, in the underbelly of the earth. And it right. was hand dug by Chinese laborers throughout the 1860s and 1870s. Uh, today we have a little over an acre underground in the caves. And the caves are, are primary for our aging of our bottles of wine. We will have bottles sitting in there anywhere between two to as long as 20 years. And in total, we have some 3.1 million bottles aging in those caves. And so people that come up and get to visit with us will go through the caves and they'll see the whole process about how the wines are made. And of course, the best part of any tour is when you get to sit down and actually enjoy the product. Yes. And Speaking part- of that, we're enjoying a bottle of uh, Brut Rosé at this moment. Bless you. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, for- we forgot to tell you that. So I want to interject something here on Schramsberg that I found. Actually, I just found this on Wikipedia. It says, Schramsberg is considered one of the premium brands in the production of sparkling wine in California and the first U.S. wine to match the style and quality of the best French champagnes. And there's several citations on that. There's Wine Talk from the New York Times, the book Fine Wines of California, and this one's a really the wine spectator. And then my favorite one is another book titled The Judgment of Paris. And this tells a true story of there being like a, a blind tasting in Paris where uh, Schramsberg was included with the French champagnes and Schramsberg won or, or some American wines. I think there were other American wines, too, that got chosen because I remember, you know, dating myself here, but when I was a kid in the 70s, I remember everybody was like, French wine, French wine, French wine. Right. And, and American wine wasn't even, you know, it was like laughable. And then, you know, obviously California is a major force now in wine and champagne. <clears throat> well, but, it, uh, you it's know. interesting, yeah, that the wine tasting in Paris that you're referring to, that was in 1976. And that was something that was actually organized by a British wine merchant, a gentleman named Stephen Spurrier. And there was a lot of uh, talk about... Did you say Stephen Spurrier? Yes. Oh, that's different from Steve Spurrier, I guess, the Gators' former head coach. Yeah, he's an Englishman he's talking about. I yeah, I, I'm sure it's different. He's going to laugh. <laughs> now, now you're making me second guess if I have his name right, but uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Spurrier. Anyway, right. Uh, so there was a lot of talk about how the french wines were at the pinnacle of the wine world and of course you know napa back in the 70s was just uh, in its rebirth after prohibition for so long being uh, defunct so there were a number of wines that were blindly uh, submitted for this tasting and as it turned out after the unveiling of the scores which were predominantly 
French judges, they had awarded the number one spot to Stagsley Wine Cellars. They won for the 1973 vintage of Cabernet. And mm-hmm. then Chateau Montalena won the Chardonnay category. And so this was something that had lasting ringing effects across the wine world where the two U.S. wines beat out the French. And, of course, uh, you know, there have been movies made about that, and it's just been uh, absolutely something spectacular that gave, gave notice to the world that Napa has come. Right, right. Cool. We should find those movies. So we I guess should. so I guess in that tasting, there was no Schramsberg, but in the no, book, it, it talks Barton. about Schramsberg. So mm-hmm. we had a similar um, wonderful opportunity that was historical preceding that and that was back in 1972 so mm-hmm. i can give you the quick uh quick version of that so the one thing that happens every four years on a global scale are the olympics and as you can imagine all the athletes they try to scrimmage and practice as, as best they can well in late mid to late 1971 the u.s ping pong team went to china to scrimmage and play because the Chinese were the best in the world. And where else were they going to get as good of a match, right? Well, you also have to think back to our our history at the time. In the early 70s, the U.S. was still embroiled in this Cold War tension with a lot of Asia, Russia, China. We were involved in the Vietnam War. I mean, so that part of the globe was not very warm and hospitable to the United States. For the American uh, Olympic team to get over there, they had to get special clearance from the State State Department to even go. Upon their return, though, they had a debriefing, and every one of the people that went came back, and they were saying glowing superlatives of the Chinese and the government and the people they met, that they were wonderful, they were gracious, they were hospitable, and all these things. And this got all the way back to President Nixon at the time. And it got uh, him to thinking, well, this is this is good to know. Why are we at such odds with China and their culture? And it got him to thinking that perhaps we should extend an olive branch, if you will, and maybe we should try to work on improving relations. So in short order, he and his team, they formed uh, an envoy to go to China. And in preparation for that, they called Schramsberg and they asked, uh, They asked Jack Davies if he would deliver 13 cases of wine to Travis Air Force Base, which is the local Air Force Base about 40 minutes from here. And, of course, they didn't communicate with Jack what their intentions were. They just said, hey, Jack, we'd like to get 13 cases of your wine. Well, back in 1972, we were a very tiny winery, a boutique, if you will, producing only about 2,000 cases of wine. And so a typical order was, you know, one, two, three cases. And somebody that wanted 13 cases definitely had our attention. But then you factor in the, that it was the White House calling, and Jack was not going right. to say no to that. So he literally loaded up the station wagon himself and drove the wines over to Travis Air Force Base. And he was filling out all this paperwork. And, you know, of course, he was wondering, you know, where it was going, who was going to drink it, how he was going to pay it, because he used to sell wine to distributors, right? Not the U.S. federal government. <laughs> so a couple of weeks go by. And uh, local friend Ann Carpey from Fremark Abbey says, Jack and Jamie, are you watching the news? And they're like, no, no, why? She says, quick, turn it on to the Today Show. Well, okay, so they did. 
Well, you know, so to put this thing in context, clearly long before the days of social media, right, everything was done mm-hmm. with journalists and, and correspondents. Well, there were 256 journalists nationwide that applied to go on this envoy with the president. And obviously they couldn't take everybody, but they vetted it down and they selected 83 journalists nationally to go on this envoy to China. And interestingly enough, one of the 83 was a very young Barbara Walters. She was just starting her career. And so on the Today Show, there she is standing in Tiananmen Square, and she is reporting that Richard Nixon is the first president to ever set foot on Chinese soil. And he had a meeting the night before with Mao Zedong and Premier Chou Enlai. And the discussions were to open up favorable trade relations and see if we could become more closely aligned and hospitable to each other. Well, as you can imagine, the meeting was a huge success. And after the meeting, they had this wonderful state dinner to honor the two nations. And one of the wines that was served, and this is Barbara Walters recording, she says, from the beautiful bucolic Napa Valley, there was a sleepy little winery called Schramsburg. And last night at the dinner, they celebrated the 1969 vintage of the Blanc de Blanc. This was something we had no idea was happening. It was literally wow. a PR opportunity we couldn't buy. Right. How cool is that? That's so cool. Because of that single auspicious moment where it was broadcast across the, the television nationwide, the phone at Schramsburg and Jack and Jamie's home literally started ringing off the hook. And wow. It put not only Napa Valley, but specifically Schramsburg on the map. And How since cool then, we've been honored and blessed. We've been served in every single presidential administration, and we've been served over 90 times at the White House now. And so it's just a huge honor. We're not the only sparkling wine, but right. we've certainly been served more often than anyone else. And it's just a huge honor. How, yeah, did, they how did they know originally about think to let's let's call Shramsburg? Nixon somehow knew. He did. So, you know, again, these are stories that I can only share with you because I've learned them after being here for so long. Um, <laughs> when Jack Davies was a young boy, he was in the Boy Scouts and he stayed and matriculated all the way through to become an Eagle Scout. And one of the people that he became friendly with in his early scouting days was a gentleman named John Ehrlichman. Now, for people that really follow the politics and, and remember back then, Ehrlichman was associated with the Watergate scandal. So <laughs> he, was, he was closely connected with Nixon early on. And when Nixon was first running for office in 1968, he had to fly back to his home state to cast his ballot. And Ehrlichman called Jack Davies back then because we had just started in 1965. So right. we had our first vintage just about ready to release then. And Ehrlichman called Jack Davies and said, Jack, do you think you could see your way clear to send Richard home with a case or two of your fine wine to celebrate his upcoming victory? And that's wow. how Nixon discovered Schramsburg and had a warm soft spot in his heart for, for Schramsburg and our wines. That's so cool. What a great, that, that I've never heard before. What a great story. Yeah, all kinds of chance meeting things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the, uh, so like the founder, Jacob Schramm, that was in the 1800s, but then let's talk about now how we came to more modern times 
uh, with the Davies. Right, because the winery was closed for quite some time. F- 50 years. Right. Yes, exactly. So sadly, Jacob passed away in 1905. And he and his wife, Annie, they had a son, Herman. So Herman and Annie kept the winery going for a few more years. But as you can probably imagine and recall, the temperance movement across the nation started gaining momentum. Right. And slowly but surely, one state after another started closing its borders to alcohol. And Mm. the, the sales trend was on a downward trajectory. And they realized this isn't looking good. And if we're going to get out, we should probably sell while there's still some value. So they sold the winery in 1912. And then obviously in 1919, Prohibition was enacted. So um, their timing was pretty good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The property. So then ja- I'm sorry. Go Jack ahead, and- Lori. I was going to say, so then Jack and Jamie came along in 65, correct? Correct. So between 1912 and 1965, this was just a beautiful property that people from San Francisco would come up and enjoy, you know, long summers and, you know, long weekends and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. the family that owned it just before Jack and Jamie, it was a couple, um, Charles Pringle and Catherine Sebring. And Mr. Pringle died rather unexpectedly. And this property was just way too much for a a single middle-aged woman to handle on her own. So she literally abandoned the property and went to the city to be with friends and family. And so when Jack and Jamie came from Los Angeles, they were up here on a little getaway weekend with a gourmet club that they belonged to. And the property had been abandoned for those six years, and it just sat in a derelict state, idle. And so they met a gentleman at a party, and he said, well, I'd love to show you around. And so they brought he brought them up here to Shramsburg, and you've been up the road. So the, from the bottom of the highway to the top where the winery is, it's like yeah. seven-tenths of a mile long. And right. Back in the day, it, me- well, it meanders through the forest, flanked with uh, giant uh, redwood trees and mm-hmm. firs. And there's a stream that runs along it. I mean, it's very idyllic. And at the time, it was just dirt sprinkled with little gravel. And the trees were overgrown. And the the house, this beautiful Victorian mansion that was built in 1875, it sat idle and vacant. And at the time, it was you know, heavily infested with bats and squirrels and raccoons and you know all kinds of just critters because uh, there was nobody up there. Well, Jack and Jamie walked around the property, and they literally just were blown away by the grandeur and the splendor and the history. And Jack described it, he says, Fred, when I looked around for that first time, he said there were two words that just kept running through my mind. This property was magical, and it was magnetic. And that's when he looked at Jamie, and he says, honey, this property is too special. We should do something with it. We should bring it back to life. And Jamie shared the exact same vision and said, oh, my gosh, yes, that sounds wonderful. Now, what's interesting about that that emotional response that they had is neither one of them knew anything about the wine business and really didn't have any close ties to it. Jack was a really well-educated man. He had a Stanford degree and a Harvard MBA. And he was working down in Los Angeles for some big mega corporations. He was president of a division, and he was in charge of mergers and acquisitions. 
Jamie Beautiful Bride. She was a business partner in an art gallery up in San Francisco. So you can clearly see that wine wasn't necessarily in, in their business acumen. But, uh, you know, Jack was a very tenacious uh, student, and he realized that if he studied the industry, he could really learn it, absorb it, and employ what he needed to know. And, you know, back in the day, today you look at Napa, you come up here and there's some 700 wineries just in Napa alone. Fortunately for Jack, back in 1965, it was a different landscape. There were only 22 wineries, so his research was really a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's almost like another chance happening, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely it was. And so as he did his homework, he realized that of those 22 wineries, almost everybody was making four red wines and four white wines, and they were selling to the distributors, and that's just kind of the way things were back then. And Jack thought, well, you know what? And, and it's we all kind of chuckle about it today because it just seems like a far-fetched idea, but it really was the impetus for Jack's decision at the time. Is He thought, my gosh, the market is saturated. Who needs another red wine? But there were only two wineries that were making sparkling wine. One of them was a winery called Hans Cornell, which has since been sold a few times and changed hands and changed names. Uh, it's now called Frank Family. I'm sure many of your audience are familiar with Frank uh-huh. Family. Uh-huh. Make, Frank Family. They yes. make absolutely sensational wines, and they're just literally down the street from us. Uh, but they we have been formally, there, too. Yeah, exactly. They, they were formerly known as Hans Cornell, and they made sparkling wine. And then, of course, over in Sonoma, there's a very uh, famous winery there, Corbell, and they were making right. sparkling mm-hmm. wine. But what Jack learned in his research was that in true traditional champagne, what they make in Champagne, France, they use three primary grape varieties, they use Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, and the latter two both being red grapes, and obviously Chardonnay being a white grape. So what Jack realizes is that the two wineries here that were making sparkling wine, they were using Chenin Blanc, and Riesling, and French Colombard, and believe it or not, Thompson Seedless, which are your table grapes. And Jack just kind of shook his head and said, well, this is silly. If you're going to do it, I think we should do it the proper way. We should do it the way the Champenois make them their bubbles. And so right. that's literally what gave him the impetus to say, we're going to get in the world of sparkling wines, and we want to emulate what the Champenois do. And so... That's how it all started. Wow. So so did um, Jacob Schramm make sparkling wine or no? No, he didn't. He made ah. still wines, and he had a lot of European varietals. And, uh, you know, some of them were from his heritage, like he had Hock and Riesling and Silvaner, which are very popular in Germany. And then, of course, he had Mission grapes and Cabernet and Merlot and, and some of the European varietals. But, uh, no, he didn't do any sparkling wine. So wow, that, that's very interesting. So that's very interesting, yeah, because yeah. if you read the entire Wikipedia entry on Schramsberg, you will not learn that. No, you will not learn that. It's actually kind of implied that it was always sparkling wine. Right, right. Yeah. And to this day, uh, the winery is still in the Davies family, managed by Jack and Jamie's youngest son, Hugh, Hugh Davies. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. So the, Jack and Jamie, they had three boys. And, you know, to, to put another fine point on just what pioneers and visionaries Jack and Jamie were. Uh, so this was 65. Jack and Jamie got married in 1960. 
Their oldest son, Bill, was born in 61. John was born in 64. And so when Jack and Jamie moved up here and they closed escrow, Jamie was seven months pregnant with her third child, Hugh. Hugh, so wow. Talk <laughs> about somebody who has you know, just a lot of energy and uh, a fighting spirit. That's Jamie. You know, come up into such a foreign foreign territory with all this work that was ahead of her, with two toddlers right. being so pregnant. It was really tremendous. That is so, tremendous. Hugh has literally grown up on the property his whole life. He That's got cool. his master's yeah. degree at UC Davis, and so he's got his master's in viticultural enology. And um, he came back to the winery in 1996. And when he started here, he was the enologist, so he worked in the lab analyzing the wines. And then over time, he, he matriculated, became the assistant winemaker, then the winemaker, then our general manager. And today, he's our president and CEO. And, uh, I'll tell you, there's not a corner of the property he doesn't know. There's, there's nothing <laughs> that he hasn't done himself. Uh, he's just got incredible fire and spirit and he, deep-seated passion for everything. He does. And now I've, I've seen his children running around on the property. Yes. Yeah, so That's pretty cool. Yes, at one of the wine dinners. He married a beautiful woman, Monique, who also comes from Napa Valley, and she worked a little bit uh, at Joseph Phelps. And they've been married now for, I think, 16 years. And they have three boys themselves. Uh, right. The oldest son is 15, and the youngest one, I want to say, is 9 or 10. So, um, you know, there's there's hope that the third generation will pick up and uh, follow along. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So, Fred, we're going to take a quick break, uh, pay some bills, and when we come back, we're going to talk some more wine, sparkling wine. We're also going to talk about how you and Lori met and the recent fires. We will be right back. Ramen is the ultimate comfort food, and Booyah Ramen on the 900 block of Central Avenue is my go-to. It's so freaking good. The broth is like a silky blanket to warm up your mouth, and the hearty proteins or just mushrooms for vegetarians, and I'll have you saying, ooh, mommy, the umami is making my eyes roll back in my head. My favorites are the pork belly and the short rib. Mmm. And then there's the noodles. O-M-G. Go get the best ramen in St. Pete at Booyah Ramen at 911 Central Avenue in the Edge District of downtown St. Pete. Do ya, Booyah? Hey foodies, do you know about the Zest podcast? If you're listening to us, you should be listening to them too. They're part of the Tampa NPR station, WUSF 89.7. On the Zest, you'll learn new recipes, baking tips, and barbecue secrets. You'll hear about what's ripe, what's growing, and what's in season. The Zest podcast is hosted by Robin Sussingham, an award-winning reporter and producer who's also an avid home cook and baker. Robin's a native Floridian and has been searching out flavors and the fascinating stories behind them from Key West to Pensacola. Learning to care for a sourdough starter and learning to bake sourdough breads really speaks to people in a very deep way. It's part of our collective history and we're getting back to our roots and our self-sufficiency. Just like us, the Zest podcast has interviews with chefs and restaurateurs and talks about food and recipes covering the Tampa Bay area and throughout Florida. It's what we listen to when we're not doing our own show. 
check out The Zest Podcast at thezestpodcast.com. We are back! We are back! And we are back with Fred Zamataro, the COO and Executive VP of Shrewsbury Vineyards. And one thing I want to say before I forget is for, especially for regular listeners of our show, know that in the, the opening with the right prior to the theme music and also at the ending, you will hear the sound of a champagne bottle being popped open and then poured. That is actually for fun, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe a, a lot of people feel it's a celebratory sound. However, Technically, it's not the right way to open champagne. Right. Correct. Can you elaborate on that? Fred actually taught me the right way to open champagne. Well, you know, it's one of those things where champagne or sparkling wines in general, it's it's the rare opportunity you get to use your fifth sense, right? Your hearing. Um, because we really use all the other senses to enjoy wine. But that, that launch right. of the, the cork does give a little bit of that auditory uh, stimulation. But in a, in a right. really refined setting, what you would do is you would take off uh, the foil capsule and hold the wire hood, or the French would refer to that as the musolet, and you hold it securely under your thumb, and you gently rock the cork out very slowly while applying some pressure, and you almost just kind of gently gas it and let it just sigh. And we, we kind of joke it should sound like a nun in church, just a little... <laughs> you would have been proud of my opening of this bottle today yeah and we have a video somewhere of you doing it fred we do so you're not supposed to shake it up and point it at your eye no you only do that if you win the stanley cup or the world series or something like that <laughs> <laughs> well we did win the stanley cup this year and we did celebrate with shramsburg and we did talk to you that night. oh i know and i'm so sorry that it wasn't uh, equally joyous for uh the, the baseball i know game. it was not right now, there's also, you guys, as part of Schramsberg, you have a whimsical character that has some significance. Yes. Oh, you're talking about our Riddler. The, the Riddler, yes. You know, that too yeah. was something totally unplanned. I mean, this, this could be the subplot of today's conversation, all these serendipitous things that happened that were unplanned. Uh, there's a, a wonderful artist out of San Francisco named Larry Shank. And uh, he's done a lot of sculpture work throughout Napa Valley at different wineries and restaurants and such. But he came up here. One of the things that he firmly understood and recognized is that when you go to the wineries, the winemaker almost has this pseudo-celebrity rock star status, right, where people will ask them to autograph bottles and they, you know, they want to take <laughs> photos with the winemaker. Well, in the sparkling wine world, there's another person or, or role that is equally as important as the winemaker, and that's the person who oversees the caves and does all the riddling. Well, what, is that, right. what does that mean, riddling? So here I'll just kind of backpedal real quick and explain this. So sparkling wine is one of the few things that is different from the wines of the table. Uh, it's got bubbles. And how do we get the bubbles in it? The wine actually goes through two fermentation cycles, whereas your Cabernet, your Merlot, your Chardonnay, your Pinot Noir, your Sauve Blancs, all those table wines, they go through fermentation once. So our sparkling wines will go through that first process. You know, the original fermentation will take place either in stainless steel tanks or French oak barrels. 
But then after we are done with the fermentation and we let them age for a couple of months, the winemaking team will assemble the blends from all the different lots that we have. And then we'll put the wine in the bottle. And at that point in time, we add a little dollop of sugar and a little kiss of yeast. And we seal it with a crown cap, a stainless steel crown cap, just like you'd see on a soda pop or a beer bottle. And we right. lay the bottles down in the caves horizontally so that they can go through fermentation all over again. And what happens is that little bit of sugar that we added and the little bit of yeast, the yeast will eat the sugar, convert it to alcohol. And so it goes through that second fermentation in each individual bottle. And that's where the magic of the bubbles gets trapped in the sparkling wine is because the byproduct of that fermentation cycle is the creation of carbon dioxide. Same thing happens right. in the just, winery. Just like with beer. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. But in the winery, we leave the tank tops open or there's little gas release valves in each of the wine barrels, the bung. And so the CO2 just literally dissipates into the atmosphere. But in the bottle where they're trapped in that crown cap, the CO2 can't escape. Mm -hmm. And that's how the magic of the bubbles is captured in each bottle of wine. So what happens, though, is this yeast over time, it starts to degrade and break down. And we call that autolysis. And we will talk about how long a wine ages with the yeast in the bottle adds to the magic and complexity of the wine. It enhances the aromatics. It certainly makes the wine more flavorful. But the other thing is it also changes the tactile sensation of the wine. It becomes more viscous and creamy. So all these wonderful things transpire the longer the wine ages with the yeast trapped in the bottle. Well, the yeast doesn't completely decompose. It just becomes this fine sediment. And so we want to get that, that yeast, that dead spent yeast, we want to extract it out of the bottle. And so the best way to do that is to take the bottles and put them in these wooden A-frame racks, we call riddling racks. And we have some staff that will come around and literally turn each bottle one-eighth of a turn every day for about six to eight weeks coaxing that yeast wow. down the neck of the bottle into the cap. And then once they've successfully done that, the wines will be taken into the finishing line, will freeze the neck of the bottle, trapping the dead yeast by the cap. We then turn the bottles wow. upright, and we're going to use the pressure in the bottle as our ally. So the pressure that's built up in each bottle, it's generally about 120 pounds per square inch. And so I use the analogy to help people visualize what 120 PSI would be, is if you think about your car, your automobile tire, it's roughly got about 32 pounds of pressure per tire. So one bottle of wine is equivalent to four times the pressure wow. of your car tire. So That is so cool. I, I had no idea about that part of the process. Yeah, so yes, you did. We went on the tour. I knew about the riddling, but I didn't, <laughs> it, it didn't register with me on, on, on the purpose of it. Now, back in the day when I first went to Shramsburg, you had one Riddler. It was Ramon. Is that correct? Yes. And Ramon retired after 39 years of working for us in the caves every day. Um, hand turning all the bottles. And you had a fascinating stat of how fast and how quickly he could riddle. Yeah, he's really proficient. So we have throughout the caves roughly about 50,000 bottles set up for him to turn every day. And, you know, that works out to be he's 
and it gives him a little bit of time to do some paperwork and some other things. So he actually can return about 7,000 bottles an hour. Wow. Yeah. I knew That's it was crazy. totally fascinating. I couldn't remember the amount. Yeah. Lori can drink that many. So to, so to come I can back, drink that many. Yeah. Thanks, honey. To come back what? and bring full circle the, the question about the, the frog logo or the statue. So the yes. Riddler is really responsible for making this wine truly clear, wonderful, and clean all the way to the end, right? So mm -hmm. uh, Larry Shank's vision was to pay homage, not necessarily to the winemaker, but to the Riddler, the cellar worker. And so it, on our property between the Victorian Mansion and the retail visitor center, we have this idyllic little pond and it's got lily pads and it's got some uh, reeds and it's got four different species of indigenous frogs and so he wanted to encapsulate this whole kind of quixotic vision and he portrayed the riddler as this four and a half foot frog wearing tuxedo with tails and a bow tie <laughs> and he's holding jay shram in his left hand which is our very best tetsukube chardonnay based wine and in his right hand, he's holding a flute of wine up to the heavens. And looking against the silhouette of the moonlight, he's admiring the stream of bubbles traveling through the center of the glass, admiring the handiwork, the clarity of his, of his hard efforts. And he's dancing because it's titled The Riddler's Night Out. You can imagine every day he's cooped up in the cave. But when he comes out at night, it's time to play and party. And so that is the yeah. homage to the Riddler. That's cool. I have many a photos of the Riddler. So how did you and Lori meet? We met. Should I tell this? Why don't you tell this, Lori? I just showed Kevin a picture of the Riddler in the pond. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, I was going out to Napa Valley with some friends in 2009. Nick, um, Dr. Nick Okeson, who was just on the podcast last month. A few weeks ago, yeah. Yep. And uh, some other uh, couples. And one of the couples' last name was Zamataro. And Joe, he had a habit of every time, and he used an old-fashioned phone book, from what I understand. He said he used a phone book. And he looked up anybody that might have the last name of Zamataro in Napa, and he found Fred. <laughs> so contacted Fred. And I don't know what he said to you or how that went about. So if you want to tell that part. So when I answered the phone and it was Joe on the other end, he explained to me that he liked to pick up the phone book and see if there was anybody with the same last name. And I thought, wow, that's kind of fun. Yeah. So we started talking and come to find out we had both come from the same area in New York. We had some uh, cousins with the same names and we started putting pieces together and we realized that somewhere along the line, we might've been second or third cousins. And, uh, so we affectionately refer to each other now as cuz. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And ironically, before we went, one of my main wishes was I wanted to go to Shramsburg because I had already been introduced to it. So then Joe arranges this whole thing and also arranges a dinner with Fred and Cheryl, which we went to the night before we went on our Shramsburg tour. So that's when I first met Fred and Cheryl. And we bonded over football and um, became close. And you guys invited me out to stay with you the next year. And we have been friends and been out there many times ever since. Yeah, it's been a wonderful relationship. And sometimes... It has. That's been 11 years. Yeah. Yeah, and you talk to Fred more than you talk to Joe. Oh, well, yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more. 
Yes, that's true. So this whole interview actually came about because Lori and I were in the car together and you happened to call just to chit chat. And well, no, he was calling to check on his house. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> but you started talking about the recent fires and the 2020 vintage. And as you're talking about this, I said, this is a podcast conversation. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, 2020. No surprise to anybody has just been an absolutely crazy year. You, you just can't yes. script this kind of stuff. It's too surreal, but it just keeps piling on, right? And, right. Um, we started in August with what they called the LNU fire, or no, I'm sorry, it was the LNU lightning complex fires. And so in August, that was the first round of fires in Northern California that there was hundreds of thousands of acres that burned and it was like four counties and just was going absolutely crazy. And then shortly after that, we were on, I want to say it was September 26th, there was another fire that erupted in St. Helena up on the eastern edge of the mountains. And that's the one that took hold in Napa with, you know, just uh, great ferocity and it came through several wineries, wiped them out, and it came through our property. And we were very fortunate that we were able to save all of the buildings but some of the forest and the vineyards and some of the infrastructure was uh, severely impacted. But uh, we had spent some time talking about that. And it's, uh, it was harrowing at the time. And now we look back and just thank our lucky stars that the firefighters, uh, such brave men and women. I, I have such utmost respect for the work that these people do. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, I mean, I know we communicated a lot during that time. I, Got a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle so I could keep up with everything every day because uh, we were so concerned about everything going on with you guys. It was very harrowing on our end, just kind of twiddling our thumbs, waiting to hear something. But um, we're glad that that you survived most of that. But you were talking about in the car, too, about some of the wineries and how they would be affected for this vintage. Yeah, there's uh, sadly that the 2020 vintage is going to be just a fraction of its normal yield. And it's it's unfortunate because this particular year was looking to be exceptional, not just from the quality standpoint, but also from the yield standpoint, a strong, solid yield. Um, The unfortunate thing is, is once the smoke hit the air, the sky, and it just laid like a blanket, it sits on the skins of the grape and when it goes through fermentation there's a chemical reaction that happens and there's two compounds one's called guayacol and the other one's called 4g uh, guayacol and it basically just gives the wine a characteristic that's reminiscent of an ashtray you just kind of get that ashy smell Uh, and it's not very pleasant so there were a lot of wineries that just flat out didn't pick grapes once the fire started because of that phenomenon. Uh, the good news is that there were some wines that, or wines, there were some grapes that were already harvested prior to the fire. So there will be some absolutely fantastic wines from 2020. The unfortunate thing is there's just not going to be a lot of them. Right. Well, you you were able to harvest most of the sparkling wine. Correct? For us, yes. So. On our property, just so we're clear for your audience, um, 
on our property here on Diamond Mountain, we have some 50 plus acres planted to all the red Bordeaux varietals. We have Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Malbec, Petit Bordeaux. And we do make red wines as well as our sparkling wines. And so for us, we had harvested about 14 tons of the Cabernet and Malbec prior to the fire. Everything after that we just let be because it was you know, too far down with the smoke paint. Um, so we'll have some 2020, but unfortunately just not a lot. Uh, but on the sparkling right. wine front, because sparkling wine fruit, the grapes that are used Chardonnay and Pinot Noir that go into the sparkling wine, we typically pick those earlier. We want lower sugar levels. We're trying to maintain some of the beautiful crisp acidity in the wines. So by the time the fire happened, we were virtually 100% done with the sparkling wines. They were fermenting. They were safely tucked away in the winery itself. And those wines are going to be spectacular. Yeah. So, you got a little, God, yeah. so you got a little bit lucky with that with the earlier yes. harvest time. Very yes. much so. We could do an entire episode on <laughs> food and wine pairings. But do you have any like basic like 101 food and wine pairings or here's your three top things to keep in mind? Well, you know, I definitely want to start off that conversation with the notion for your audience that it's a little bit of a paradigm shift in our thinking. We all tend to think of sparkling wines and champagnes. Again, I will use those two terms interchangeably, but just so I'm clear, champagne and sparkling wine are the same thing. Champagne is a geographic region. What they make in champagne is sparkling wine. But out of respect, we call it champagne. What we do here is right. the same thing, but since we're not in the champagne region, we don't call it that. We would call it sparkling wine. In Spain, they would call it cava. All right, so you just kind of use right. those, uh, those in terms. In Italy, it's Prosecco. Prosecco, yeah. Right. So for us, the big shift is just getting people to recognize that sparkling wines and champagnes can be everyday food wines. In fact, they're some of the very best food wines. Um, it's not just something you have at a wedding or December 31st. You know, it's not just only for celebratory occasions. It's really every day. And, you know, I know your, your focus tends to be on, on food. So let's talk a little bit about some of the food. You know, I kind of say, as much as we would all love to go to the French Laundry and Per se in New York and, and you know, Burn Steakhouse and some of these, you know, these great restaurants, we don't eat that way every day. So we sometimes just kind of right. need to dummy it down a little bit and think about some of the fun things that we can have with our wines that uh, make them approachable, right? So it just as an aperitif all by itself, maybe you have. Um, this, the Blanc de Blanc, which is 100% Chardonnay, it tends to be really tart and crisp and lean. So people love to pair that with fish and things like oysters and caviar and shellfish. That's absolutely wonderful. But let's face it, we're not all eating oysters and caviar every day. <laughs> and if you are, I want to come yeah. over. But, um, you know, it really needs to just be uh, broken down to some of the basics. Like, how about a veal or chicken piccata? Uh, another thing that goes beautiful with our creamed based dishes because the high acid, the effervescence, and the, the cleanliness of that wine, it really is cleansing in the mouth palate 
for things yeah, like counterbalance it. Yeah, so with the fatty foods like fettuccine alfredos, the uh, the clam chowders, right? Those kinds of things. Right. It's really very refreshing and cleansing. Uh, mm-hmm. How about calamari, Frito Misto's, ceviches, uh, sushis, hard cheeses, right? Or you could do soft triple cream cheese. Mm-hmm. I love it with I like all that. Yeah, I love it with simple things like, <laughs> hey, let's have grouper tacos, right? It's it's Taco Tuesday. Some fresh fish tacos <laughs> and some blanc de blanc. But the absolute, That's cool. I love that. The absolute simple go-to that if you just want to indulge in some of those guilty pleasures is there's nothing better than some salty foods with bubbles. Think of things like Agreed. popcorn, potato chips, uh, salted nuts. How about some truffle fries, right? All these yeah. things just go so well. And you can kick it up a notch, too. Like when we make popcorn, you can make some just beautiful fresh popcorn while you're kicking back on the couch watching a movie, open a bottle of bubbles. And then what my wife will do is she'll sprinkle a little bit of truffle salt or drizzle nice. a little bit of truffle oil on the popcorn. And then we can shave some fresh Parmesan on it. So we're doing that this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Um, and other people will go prefer different seasoning. Maybe we want to just sprinkle right, a little right. cumin on it or some curry powder. Yeah. And, you know, go- going back to one of your points earlier on is that, you know, uh, sparkling wine is not just for New Year's Eve or special no, occasions. Right. It can be all the time, anytime. And a friend of ours, I don't know if you met him when you were here. His name is Ken Smith. And he has gone through all of his courses. He's at the, he has not been certified as a sommelier yet, but he's at that point now where he can do his certification. And we have a monthly recipe where he provides the wine pairing for it. And one day when we were talking to him, he said, you know, if it's anything's ever in question, just get some bubbles. <laughs> bubbles always work for everything all the time. Exactly. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? We make so many different styles of sparkling wine, right? So you get the Blanc de Blanc, which is Chardonnay based. We've got Blanc de Noir, which is Pinot Noir based. Then we have right. some uh, Tete Bays, which are each longer on the yeast, and they're traditionally a blend of those two. Um, I know you started the conversation earlier. You said you were enjoying the Brut Rosé. Yes. Brut Rosé, what a gorgeous wine. This is a, just a classic blend. It's about 60% Pinot Noir, 40% Chardonnay. This, it's beautiful. This wine, you know, keeping it simple, right? Kiss. Keep it simple, right. stupid. How yeah, wonderful exactly. is it? And I know we're not doing a lot of entertaining now, but when we get those doors back open and we're, we're hugging our friends and family members again and you want to do some entertaining, what better simple things than some melon wrapped in prosciutto with the classic fruit rosé? How about exactly. grilled or poached salmon? Margarita pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about some burgers? You know, just a nice turkey burger. Uh, <laughs> ham, glazed ham. Thanksgiving turkey, right? The stuff, all those beautiful things. Other finger-looking food: barbecue ribs, barbecue chicken. Um, my personal favorite. I just love Sunday morning with Cheryl. We'll have some fresh berries, locks. From bagels with fruit rosé. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've I've been to that that uh, brunch many a time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you can live large and for a very modest price with some of this stuff. Exactly. Other cultural exactly. favorites, like paella, right? Um, 
there's just so many things. And so I'm always encouraging people to just kind of think outside of the box and have what foods you like. Yeah, it really does work with just about everything. Yeah, totally yeah. does. Totally. So I, I want to let our listeners know where they can find some different uh, Schramsberg bottles. There is Fourth and Vine. That's on, it's it's technically the address is 327 11th Avenue North, but it's really on 4th Street North yes. behind Grand Hacienda. Correct. And and wave to Lori's condo when you're right. there. Right, I live the across street. the street. So 4th and Vine behind Grand Hacienda on 4th Street. There's also Publix. It's on like every other corner. There's a Publix. And I found there, I got the uh, the uh, Brut Rosé that we're drinking and now. And the Blanc de Blanc. And also the Blanc de Blanc, which is the one that uh, Nixon brought to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very reasonably priced. So yeah, you guys you guys have some very reasonably priced stuff for, for anyone on a tight budget. It's great. But you also have some other items that, you know, if you don't have a budget because your budget's through the roof, Knock yourself out. You can do that too. Yes. Um, Jay Schramm and Reserve right up there with uh, Dom Perignon Cristal. Yep. And, and I want to mention one more time, the, the uh, Davies uh, Red Wines also are part of this and they are amazing. A, a few restaurants that uh, are carrying is the, the Library, Park Shore Grill. Anada, ha- Anada too. Anada. Park Shore has the Mirabelle Brut Rosé. Ken Smith told me that because he mm-hmm. works there. Right. And... We're thinking probably Rococo as well. We have not been able to check with them, but they have one of the largest wine lists in the area. So they likely do. I think uh, Burns also, right, Fred? Yes, Burns does it. Yes. Burns over in Tampa. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, go into your, your regular place where you normally buy wine and just ask them about Schramsberg. And, you know, it's not too hard to order it in if they don't have it. Right. And, and maybe they do. And maybe you want to support who you normally buy from. And you can also go on Just to, buy direct. onto the website. Yeah, it's, it's schramsberg.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-M-S-B-E-R-G, schramsberg.com. And there are even, you can just, you know, order like you normally would order this, that. But there are also four different wine clubs right on that one website. And you can look at those and see if one of those works for you. And so there's, you, got, you told me, Fred, that you guys frequently run one cent uh, shipping specials when you order a case or more. And then also now as a club member, shipping is free. Plus you you get discounts on all different stuff. And if you go to visit, you get a free tour and you can say hi to Fred. Yeah. Well, that's worth it right there. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Fred Zamataro, thank you so much. Oh, it's been my yes, thank pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful to catch up with you. It has. We'll be right back. This is Chris Walker, and you're listening to CP Foodies Podcast. We have two new restaurant reviews on the site. The Lore took over the location that was Central Melt, and they are also doing specialty grilled cheese sandwiches as an homage to Central Melt and Ed Allen. We have a review of that. Also, Anju Korean Gastro Truck, which we reviewed a couple of years ago, has taken over the space that used to be M&M Barbecue, and we have a new review of them. You can find both of those on stpetersburgfoodies.com. Next week on the show, we'll be talking to Kristen Hess. She is a food stylist, food photographer, blogger, and recipe creator that has done work for big national brands as well as local St. Pete restaurants. 
If you'd like to send us fan mail, hate mail, or if you have any requests for interviews or restaurant reviews, just send an email to info at stpetersburgfoodies.com. That's it for this episode of the St. Petersburg Foodies Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guest, Fred Zamataro. And thanks to our sponsors. Greenstock. Rolling Oats. The Zest Podcast. Noble Crust. Booyah Ramen. And, and Engine, Engine Number nine. 9. Our announcer is Candice Aviles from Meet the Chef and Channel 10 News. And our theme music is provided by the Chris Walker Band. We'd like to remind you to check out all the latest restaurant reviews, foodies news, top 10 lists, and updated happy hours on stpetersburgfoodies.com. Please give us a rating and review on whichever app you're using to listen to the show. And remember to share the show with your foodie friends. Until Until next next time, time, may your food be hot and your bubbly cold. Chips champagne. You really think you can get it open? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I've opened one or two before in my life. <laughs> it's simply a matter of uh, pressure and counterpressure. <laughs> there she goes. Boy, you sure got powerful thumbs. <laughs> I used to play a lot of badminton. Get the glasses. Okay. Quick, quick, the glasses. 